You ready for the second to last sermon in Solomon? Yeah, good. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Kevin, actually, next week, Kevin will be closing out the series. He's going to jump in and give us the final message on Solomon. But I would like to ask you, turn and open with me to your Bibles in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. As you turn there, I want to talk to you about core sins. You may be saying, what, Michael, per se, is a core sin? A core sin is very simply the sin that most easily traps you. It is the thing in life that you are most tempted by. I want you to imagine um, if Satan were to set up a trap for you that would cripple you, what would he use to trap you? What would he use to make you stumble? What is your weakest point? There are struggles you know that come and go, but your core sin oftentimes seems to be that struggle that persists and persists and persists. In fact, for many of you, your core sin is a secret that nobody knows but you. Um, I've talked to many saints who are older in the faith, been walking with the Lord for 40, 60, 80 years, and they will still attest that there are still sins from their youth that haunt them and continually try to lure them and tempt them. And so some of you may be um, thinking to yourself, this is not a sermon for me. I've walked with the Lord for 40 or 60 years. And, And I think Solomon, if he were here, would stand in front of you and say, you are never too old to be caught up and trapped by that core sin, that thing that keeps haunting you and coming back to you. And so I want to break down this idea of core sin in two ways and use Solomon as an example. Uh, I want to talk to you about the what and the why. And so the what for Solomon, very simply, the thing that traps him up, it's very simply this. It's women. Any woman. Solomon would have sex with any woman. He would accumulate them, marry them, do whatever he could to attain them. He was obsessed with women. Now, if he just stopped there, you would not get to the root of the issue. Now the question is why? Why women? What was it about women that he kept pursuing and obsessing over them and accumulating over a thousand in his harem? I want to give you the answer he gives from Ecclesiastes, which is he was desperately searching for meaning. Desperately searching for meaning. And women happened to be one of the primary places that he poured his entire life and resources into accumulating as much as possible with the hopes that somehow this would provide for him lasting meaning in life. And pop quiz, Village Church, did it work? Answer? No. Failed him miserably. And if you want proof, just read the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, So his core sin, we're going to find this in his life, it was not something that just popped up. It was with him from his youth. This was in him from the time when he took over the reins in his early teens, maybe 12, 13, or 14 years old. And here's what happened. It accumulated slowly over years. It reached its zenith, its climax in his old age. And so what we're going to find here is that the sin that was inside of him that he wrestled with, he gave into it little by little by little until the point when he was an old man where it took him down. And so again, some of you may be thinking, I've walked with the Lord long enough. This isn't for me. I just want to tell you, you are never, ever too old to be taken captive by your core sin and for it to trap you and deceive you and harm you. 
The older you get, one of the desires that you should have is to leave a godly legacy for the generations uh, behind you. And if Satan could trap you up in your 70s, 80s, or 90s, he would take every opportunity to tarnish your legacy because he hates you, he hates your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. So whether you are young and you are wrestling with this course sin now or whether you are old and you think you have overcome it and you are above it, I want to just tell you this sermon is for you. Amen? Amen. So if you're reading the book of 1 Kings, Solomon's life is, is between chapters 1 and 11. And if there was not a chapter 11, where we'll be this morning, you would think Solomon was the greatest king in human history. I mean, it brags about Solomon for 10 chapters straight. He's amazing. He's the wisest man who's ever lived. He's the wealthiest man who ever lived. I mean, people um, brought um, gold uh, from all over the world just to bring to him to hear his wisdom and to honor him. I mean, Solomon was amazing, built palaces and temples and homes, and he did all of these unbelievable things. And then you you get to chapter 11, and everything that he built begins to crumble under his own immorality and giving in to this course in. And it's very, very sad, but the author writes it this way. He wants you to notice, by the way he organizes this, that Solomon was trapped up at the last part of his life. In the final years of his life, he finally gave in to the sin that had been accumulating and growing for many, many years. So uh, before we look at 1 Kings 11, I want you to just listen to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And there are restrictions that God gives in the law for future kings of Israel. There are three things that he tells the kings you are not supposed to do. I want you to listen along. Here's what he says. Only the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in in order to acquire many horses Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Uh, The goal is that God does not want any king of Israel to amass an enormous army. Why? Because God is their protector and their defender. Did Solomon amass an enormous army? Answer, yes. Number two, verse 17, uh, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Did Solomon acquire Many, 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 many wives. Answer, yes. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold or silver. Did Solomon accumulate unbelievable amounts of gold or silver? Answer, yeah, so much so that it was said um, silver was as, a, as nothing. It was like rocks. There was just so much of it. It was no big deal. And you find here that power, sexual love, and money are the greatest threats to kings. And I would contend that these are the greatest threats that will stand between us and our relationship with God. But this trifecta coming together of a huge army, um, lots of wives and women, um, and more money than you could handle is a perfect recipe for the heart of a king to be far from God and to rely on chariots or riches or women for security uh, rather than the Lord himself. And so the Lord just enters in and says, look, your job is not to amass these things. Now, question, did Did Solomon know the law in this area? The answer is yes. Unequivocally, absolutely, he knew the answer here. And there's something so powerful about these things, but there was one of the three that honestly ruined Solomon. And it gets back to his core sin. It's that that of women. He could not say no. He obsessed over them. We're going to watch this unravel. So now let's look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. 
And this, this opening sentence is so wrong on so many levels. It says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And just, just so you know, he didn't discriminate. He loved all kinds of women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, who was Egyptian, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. It didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter what you looked like. Solomon was obsessed with women. He could not say no. Keeps going on. Um, From the nations, verse 2, concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you. I want you to catch this word. For surely, most probably, almost inevitably so, surely, if you enter into marriage with these foreign women, here's what's going to happen. They will turn your heart after their gods. They will turn your heart after their gods. There's something so powerful about a a woman that who does not love the Lord that if you go after her there's something so um, uh, intense about the love and the sexual relationship that inevitably it is one of the greatest weaknesses of men that they will turn their hearts away from the Lord and this is what Solomon runs into head on now I want to translate this for you into a New Testament context foreign does not mean God is against we'll call it uh, inter-ethnic or interracial marriages. That's not the issue. The issue is interfaith marriages. Here's why. Because God understands that there is nothing like an unbelieving husband or wife that will draw your heart away from love of Jesus Christ. There is nothing on earth that will draw your heart away like that. And so let's come back to this issue. The word foreign is best translated. I think God would say it like this. Don't date or marry people who don't love Jesus. Let me just put it as simply as that. It's not a matter of whether they're Christians or non-Christians. Let's just get rid of all the excuses that we love to make. Do not date or marry or associate yourself in in an intimate sexual relationship uh, in, in a way that commits itself on a trajectory toward marriage in any way with somebody who is not passionate about Jesus. God has not changed his mind on this. The, the New Testament didn't come in and God's like, yeah, freedom for all, no rules, right? Um, his ideas and his perspective on this has not changed. Is God a party pooper? No. Everything God says is for our good and for our happiness and our joy because he understands this, that there is something so powerful about the love of a man and a woman that nothing will turn the heart of a man or a woman like the faith of an unbelieving or the lack of faith of an unbelieving spouse. Let's go to number two. I could rant on that for years, but I'll stop there, point made. Solomon's obsession. So Solomon, when you hear this word, clung to these in love, clung, holding on as tightly as he can. He knows, he knows this is not what the Lord wants for him, but his heart wants it so bad that he cannot let go. Tradition um, says that Solomon um, actually impregnated the queen of Sheba, this queen who came in chapter 10 um, to get his wisdom. Rumor has it he couldn't even hold himself back from her. Now, we don't know if it's true or not, but does it fit the character of the man? He absolutely does. It goes on. We've talked about this quite a bit, but he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, a harem of over a thousand people. And this does not even begin to address 
all of the women on top of this that he had sexual relationships with. I want you to catch this. Solomon hoarded and collected women. This was a status symbol for him. Uh, He saw women as an object to make much of himself and to be outlets of his lust and pleasure. Now, you, you step back and you say, how, how could he do this? He knew God's word. Something that boggles my mind, just drives me really nuts when I read about the life of Solomon, is Solomon is the author of the Song of Solomon, which is a beautiful love poem in Scripture written about the beauty of marriage and sexuality in the context of marriage, traces their dating, their wedding, their arguments, their sex life. Just beautiful eight-chapter poem. And and you see in this that Solomon clearly understands uh, the beauty and the goodness and the rightness of one man and one woman in covenant, faithful, marital love. He gets that. Uh, He understands that even sex outside of this context, he keeps saying, do not awaken or arouse love until it's time. He understands that there's something so sacred and beautiful about marriage and in this context. uh, What happened to the Solomon that wrote the Song of Solomon? I mean, this should bother you. I read this over and over again, and some people would say Solomon um, wrote the Song of Solomon in his early years, Ecclesiastes, right before he died, and, and uh, so that um, he understood it, and then he walked away from it, and then you read Ecclesiastes, and he's just a grumpy, bitter old man. Verse 3, and his wives, I mean, go figure, turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And you're going to see something come up in here. You're going to see that as he is growing older, he starts giving his life, his money, his resources to building these, these high places, these false temples of worship to some of these false gods. We'll uncover this in just a moment. But the text wants you to understand something, that there is a difference between what happened in his younger years and what happened in his older years. And I'm going to give you just a little sneak peek. In his younger years, he built temples to these false gods. In his later years, he participated in their worship of gods who did things like offering sacrifice uh, children as sacrifices in fire. So Solomon, this man who grew up to love God, went from writing poetry about beauty and marriage to finally, after the love of these foreign women, drawing his heart away, finally to the culmination point to when he's an old man, he is either actively participating in or advocating or being a part of the sacrifice of babies and children to the fire gods while they are alive. Let's unravel this and just see how it goes. Um, Just look at verse three again. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So I want you to imagine you got into a debate with Solomon. I love debating, as long as you're not mean or nasty. Um, I love debating. And uh, I guarantee you, the best of you would lose to Solomon. Uh, There is no man with more insight, understanding, knowledge, and wisdom And I imagine that Solomon is debating with somebody, and this somebody is trying to defend, um, it's okay to marry foreign women, it's okay to have multiple wives, it's not that big of a deal, sexuality is just a trite and flippant thing, and Solomon could argue better than anyone else on planet earth for the sanctity of marriage, the sacred uh, nature of sexuality. He could um, tell you how idolatry worship would destroy the soul and corrupt mankind and cause God's discipline, and yet here we get a man who's got great theology but half-heartedness. 
And even his best ideas and wisdom and insight and rationale could not compete with the lure of lust and women. As he gets older and older and older, it does not matter how much knowledge he's accumulated, his heart wins. And his heart, over time, was being given over more and more to this core sin of women in a hunt and a search for meaning. Let's look at number three, Solomon's abomination. Now, this is a big word. It's a big word, um, but I want to put it in here because the Bible puts it in here. I want to define it for you and then explain some things. Abomination is a sin coupled with disgust. It's a sin coupled with disgust. So what we find in Scripture is that all, all sins will lead you straight to hell. But not all sins have the same devastating consequences on earth or provoke God to discipline as quickly. So let's just make the point. Um, is stealing worse than child sacrifice? No, right? I would rather you steal than sacrifice a child to the fire god Moloch, okay? A um, hundred times over. And apparently, if you sacrifice a child, the punishment is instant death by stoning under Old Covenant law, okay? We don't play by that rule anymore, but that's, the, that's uh, for the Jews and that nation. That was the law, okay? And generally speaking, if you stole something, it was repayment, Okay? Um, you see the difference, right? One is very different than the other. And so there's something I want you to understand. There's two words I want to give you. Uh, the what and the wait. And here's what this means. I don't want you to just call sin, sin, okay? Lying is sin. That's the what, okay? Stealing is sin. Child sacrifice is sin. I don't want to just tell you the what. I also want you to understand the wait, that there are some things that have much greater and profound weight. So I don't want to preach against stealing with the same weight that I preach against child sacrifice. Do you hear how they're very different categorically speaking? And so even though both of them are sin, that's what they are, each of them have a different level of weight to them. And there are some sins that disgust God so much that he says, these sins have the weight of abomination. I mean, do you just feel the weight of the word as I say it? It's like, it's a thick Word. God doesn't use this word for just any and every sin. And so he steps back and says, there are some sins that are so disgusting, so vile, so perverse, that they provoke me to almost immediate discipline. And there are some sins where I step back and I could be patient for a season and, and, I, and I discipline, but they're categorically a very, very different weight. And what we find is that culture, this is just a great illustration, what culture called abomination three years ago calls good today. And in five years, they'll call something else abomination that's good. And then it will go back to being good, and it'll go back to being an abomination. It goes back and forth and up and down. Every culture is different. Do we rely, like lemmings, on the culture of the day to tell us what is good, what is evil, what is an abomination, what is righteous? No. They can't even decide for themselves. We need something bigger than that, something that uh, is uh, larger than that, something that um, ultimately is true despite what culture you're in, despite what country you live in, despite what generation you live in, right? And God's word comes back and God's word calls what sin is and it puts weight to sins. And for us to be able to look at some things and say, abomination, child sacrifice, disgusting abomination, it's sin with a level of disgust toward the sin in our hearts. And that's okay to feel. I want you to understand the what and the wait. Now, I want you to see in verse 5 why we use this word. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Then, we'll go to verse 7 with me, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh or Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain 
east of Jerusalem. Do you hear the word abomination coming up over and over and over again? Because God wants you to understand this, right? There are some sins that have a much greater and disgusting weight than others. Now, I want to just walk through with you what some of these gods are and mean and why this is important. All of them basically come from some sort of Canaanite religious system. And this system is the basic framework for a lot of the religions of the countries and the tribes around Israel. And so you'd have Edomites and Ammonites and all these other group of ites and Hittites and whatnot. Um, But all of them basically worship the same group of gods, although in each culture they took on their own little nuance and meaning and weirdo relationships. And so you see here, there's a god Milcom, which is another name for Moloch, one of the most disgusting gods in scripture, completely satanically motivated. And very simply, this is the national god of the Ammonites. I mean, they devoted their nation to the worship of this god. And here's what worship of this god required. The sacrifice of living children by fire to the god regularly. I don't know what mom or what, what dad can be so deceived to the point where they think that somehow this is rational, that this is good, but they are so afraid of this god that they will give him their firstborn children. I mean, it's revolting. And what you should be experiencing as I say this right now is disgust. And you know why? Because your soul knows that's an abomination. Your soul knows that there is something so wicked about this. Now we keep going here and uh, you'll find that as you study and uncover the god Moloch, um, he required uh, in a very perverse way numerous sexual acts to happen in his presence. And Typically, um, homosexual sex, orgies were considered as offerings to the gods. And this is just a normal thing for them. They would go to these high places. They would build them all over. Keep in mind, all of his wives had these high places built for them. There were 700 wives plus the altars that other people were making. And disgusting, perverse acts would happen at these sites. And this is part of the rhythm of these false religions. This is why God hated them so much, because children would grow up in a world where it was rational and right to sacrifice babies or older kids of firstborn to a fire god. Like there's something so depraved and disgusting about the very essence and core of the culture from the ground up. Uh, You and I keep thinking, I think, when we read about these tribes and scriptures, that they're like us, you know, like they have some kind of Judeo-Christian background and ethic. These are completely pagan gods as their foundation who kill children by fire alive. These are nothing like you and I think about today. These are perverse from the very ground up. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 20, in case you're wondering if the Lord spoke to this, he did, verses 1 to 3. Here's what he says in the law. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Here's one of the crazy things. If you ever want to read the Old Testament law and be kind of like shocked, understand this, that every law was written because humanity is prone to break those laws. That there is something so powerful about the culture of this Canaanite religious cult that has infected the Israelites so much that God has to go in and say, look, you're going to have tendencies to this. You're going to be afraid of Moloch. You're going to be afraid of this stuff. Here's what I want to tell you. Do not play by their rules. Do not sacrifice your children. 
And the fact that that would even cross the people of Israel's mind, I don't know about you, but to me that's kind of mind-blowing. Chemosh or Chemosh, the national god of the Moabites, uh, also required the burnt offering of children as a regular part of his worship. The king of Moab, just to give you an illustration of this and how depraved they were, in 2 Kings chapter 3, the king of Moab is having an onslaught. He's trying to take over a city. And here's what it says. When the king of Moab saw the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through, opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And so the Moabites, the king, is trying to get past the wall and eat him. They can't do it. 700 swordsmen can't break through. And so imagine being the son and your dad calls for you and says, that fire is for you. We have to sacrifice you to the god Moloch. I mean, do you hear the corruption inside of this? Now, the Bible is not afraid to shy away from these issues. It tells it how it is. It describes these nations so that every person for hundreds and thousands of years to come will understand that when God says eradicate them from the face of the planet, you'll understand why. Because it was so grotesque and it's so disturbing from the very ground up that what we don't even have categories. These guys put ISIS to shame. They put ISIS to shame. And I want you to catch the level of depravity that went on in these groups of people. And then there's number three, Ashtoreth, the main goddess of the Canaanites. Um, she was the goddess of love and fertility, and she was said to be the um, lover of Baal. And so what they would do is they would, again, enact religious acts publicly, the most grotesque things that you can imagine, and they would do these as a religious pornography to uh, uh, incite and to make um, the gods Baal and Ashereth um, ready to make love so that the land could be fertile. It's crazy. And I, I step back, and, and some of you are thinking, how, how could they, Right? I'm not going to harp on this. I'll just throw it out for your consideration. But what is the God of, of secular 21st century America? Me, right? It's me. My pleasure, my wants, my desires, my entitlement. And how many millions of babies are sacrificed at the God of me through abortion? How could we? They would, how could we ever give our children to this? And yet, the stats and the amount of babies who are not born are Unbelievable. God calls sexual immorality of almost every sort outside of the context of marriage an abomination. And yet we, at the God of the altar of our own selves, give ourselves to sexual immorality over and over and over and over again, right? How could they? How could they? How could they? How could we? This is, I, I want you to catch this. This isn't a them issue. This is an us issue. This is our tendency. Do you see how easy it is to believe the lies that it's not really a baby, it's just sex. Do you get that? It's so ingrained into the culture that we grow up in that it's just not that big of a deal. Now imagine growing up in this, and this is just normal for little kids to see their big brother burned alive in a fire. That's what you do. And it numbs the conscience, it sears the heart, and it becomes a part of their culture. And with every generation, it gets more grotesque and more ugly. I want you to notice in verse 7 where, um, where Solomon began building some of these. On the mountain east of Jerusalem. This is probably the Mount of Olives, which is right to the east of, of the temple. It rose about 200 feet above the temple. And so these high places were looking over the temple of Yahweh worship. And Solomon built them even right next to this temple. I mean, it's like, all right, I, I get it if you're going to worship a false god and go 50 miles away and build a temple. But it's like building a false temple right across the street from the church that looks over the church. I mean, there's a level of, of uh, just belligerence here that is hard to read. In verse 8, it says this, And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So Solomon did what was 
evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. You need to catch something here, and I'll tell you very simply. Solomon, not yet in the text, is making the sacrifices himself. He's enabling his wives to do it. He's supporting them financially to build these false um, places of worship, these high places, these temples, okay? It appears, though, the text goes out of its way to make sure you understand that Solomon didn't make the transition from supporting to participating until, quote, his old age. So let's get to uh, number four, Solomon's discipline. And, and uh, to preface this, verses 9 to 14, they give us really two significant warnings I want to call your attention to. Here's the first warning. Experience with God will not protect your heart from straying. So I'll be honest, like there are moments where I'm like, man, if Jesus could just sit down and have like a face-to-face conversation with me, um, I would like totally be way more faithful. Like I would be way less inclined to sin. And uh, man, if I just saw God raise somebody from the dead in the name of Jesus Christ, and they came back and told about being in the presence of God, and I saw it happen. If I saw a limb grow back from nothing to a full limb, like I would have so much more faith. God, give me experiences. I just want to experience you more. And, and, and I want to show you this, but here's what I want you to get. It does not matter how, how many experiences, miraculous things you get to see or experience. They will not trump the heart. The heart will go after its, its obsession, period. Solomon needs massive heart surgery. He does not need more experiences with God. And we're going to see Solomon had two experiences with God that most of us in this room would have given anything to have. And let's read in verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, duh, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. He did not just get one appearance he got two appearances. First uh, Kings chapter 3, the Lord comes to him and says, ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. And you know, he said, give me an understanding mind. So the Lord gives him a more wisdom than anyone on earth. The second appearance was in First Kings chapter 9. The Lord comes to him, probably in his middle age sometime, and he basically warns him and says, if you run after women and false gods, I will destroy you. I will take this thing from you. I mean, before Solomon actually gives himself fully over to this, he has another appearance with God. And it just goes to show you, you can have the most amazing, life-altering, supernatural experiences, and if your heart is far from God, you will still go towards the sin. It's amazing. I would think if anybody in the world would have learned, it would have been him from even just his experiences. But number two, if you tolerate an unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend's lack of faith, if you persist in that relationship, you are very, very likely to practice it later. So here's what he goes on in verse 9, verse 10. It says this, The Lord had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice. I want you to watch this. Verse 8, he says this, Solomon did, he built these temples for all of his foreign wives. He's not participating yet. But now in verse 11, this is his practice. This is what he's doing. Solomon has moved from being a faithful child of God, writing poetry and music for God, compromising, letting his core sin take over him, marrying foreign women, accumulating foreign women, compromising in his middle age to finally supporting them by building temples for their false gods. 
And then finally, in his old age, he gives in and his heart is turned fully over to them and he is participating in the practice of child sacrifice and other debaucheries that are beyond human imagination. How does the author of Song of Solomon go from a lover of one woman to this? And it just goes to show you how deceptive sin is. And some of us say, we're above that, I'm better than that. If the wisest man who ever lived was not above it, who do you think you are? And this is a warning. I mean, just be straight. This is a warning. If you can identify the what and the why of your core sin, go after it. Go after it. And you could be in your 40s and 50s and say, I dealt with my core sin when I was in my 20s. Talk to Moses who in his anger killed a man in his youth and in his anger as an old man lost access into the promised land because he struck a rock. The same dumb sin that caught him up as a kid haunts him decades later as an old man and he loses the promise. So you and I, right? We're better than that. I'm awesome. I got it all under control. I'm I'm so mature. I know more than the rest of people. You don't. You don't. These things haunt you and it requires a lifelong humility of understanding your capacity to sin for the rest of your life until the day you die and the Lord removes us from this flesh, you and I are capable of great, great sin and great evil. And until we acknowledge that and own that, we will not be protected from it. The first step in moving towards protection is even honoring and owning the fact that that could be me. Could be me. I am not beneath Solomon, because I have the same nature that he does. And your core sin might be different. It might lead you to different places, but we're still not beneath it. And then verse 11, we see the punishment. So sad, but therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I'm not sure what's worse. Part of me would say, no, Lord, take it from me and bless my son. But this might be a worse punishment. I don't know. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. And then in verses 14 and on, the Lord himself raises up continual adversaries just to make Solomon's life hard for giving himself over to this. Uh, You know, I got to the end of this, and uh, I had one question for myself, and I want to ask it for you. Am I a David, or am I a Solomon? I really want to be a David. And I put a little comparison here. David loved God as a youth. Solomon loved God as a youth. David struggled with lust and women. Solomon struggled with lust and women. We need to catch now the difference. David hid his sin. Solomon flaunted it. This, this may sound small, but I think this is, the, this is a huge, huge indicator. There is a difference between the one who hides his sin and the one who flaunts it. The hardness of heart to say, I don't care what you think, I will do this, I could care less, is very different than the embarrassed heart who is a slave and yet tries to hide it. I would rather somebody try to hide it than to be flaunted. I would rather nobody do either, okay? Just to be clear on that. But there's a fundamental difference. David knows in his heart what he's doing is not okay. 
David was confronted by Nathan. Solomon was warned personally by God twice. David changed his behavior. We need to catch this. When David was confronted, he repented. Solomon clung to his wives. He clung to them. We need to catch the difference here. And you start to watch in the latter parts of their life as they unravel, Solomon unravels. David at his best, after moments of ridiculousness, adultery with Bathsheba, murder of Uriah, ridiculous things, comes back and says, I want you, God. Solomon clings to his women and says, I want more women. I want more stuff. And now you start to watch the trajectory of their lives go in different directions. David grew old and gracious. Solomon grew, grew old and grumpy. I mean, just read Ecclesiastes. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to, like that to be my grandpa. <laughs> I think Solomon's story is that you can have all the wisdom, knowledge, understanding, experiences, and none of these will keep you from sin. And I want to just end on a high note, um, because I know it's a bummer, but it's there, it's in the text, we preach whatever comes up, and I found there is one thing, one thing that will protect you. This is it. If you can catch this, if you can fight for this, there is a level of protection around your heart that is second to none. If you can daily pursue God in intimacy, you will be protected. And let me even make it even more like meticulous. If you can hourly pursue God in intimacy, you will be protected. So I don't know about you. Everyone who knows me will attest I am dumb. I, there is so much sin inside of me, I can't even believe it. The amount of things on a daily basis that come up in my heart that I have to battle. Rumor has it I'm not alone, okay? Right? Anybody else give me an amen on this, okay? Right? It's not just like five minutes in the morning where I'm like, all right, I did my devotions. I'm good for the whole day and I can battle anything that comes against me. You know, like I am capable of much sin and much evil on a daily basis. And uh, those of you who know me, you know, like I listen to hours of podcasts a day because my brain is so silly that I need to fill it with goodness and things of God regularly because I am capable of being so silly. I am wrestling with my intimacy with God every single day. And here's what I found. Intimacy with God is a battle. It is a fight because your flesh wants to give into your core sins and then everything else. And it's not something that you just deal with once a day by saying, hey, Jesus taught me today. Peace, I'm out. Oh, I prayed at a meal. I'm good. I mean, it requires... I really believe this. It requires being diligent in the word of God. It requires pursuing him in prayer. It requires being with God's people. It just requires much more than aimlessly wandering throughout our day, crossing our fingers, and hoping it's going to work out. And if you will make your aim to know God, this is what David did. After every one of his dumb decisions, he comes back and says, I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to draw near to you. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. For David, it was about God. It was about intimacy. And as he got away from his intimacy with God, what did he do? Dumb things. Now, I would just tell you that the most precious, important thing that you can do in your life to build a rock-solid foundation for every day until the day you close your eyes in death is to pursue Jesus Christ personally and with God's people. It will be more of a protection and defense than I could ever tell you. Solomon would stand here and say, I'm a fool. I'm a fool. I let it go. David would stand up and say, nothing protected me like my intimacy with God. And so that's my encouragement to you, whatever it would take. And I can't think of, honestly, a better way to close this sermon than for us to worship. 
uh, I think worship is just one of the most important aspects of our intimacy with God. So I want to invite the band to come up. And uh, we're going to close with two songs. And uh, this first song, Break Every Chain, I love this. It is a beautiful reminder. Whatever your core sin is, Jesus Christ can break the chain of slavery that it has over your life. That it no longer needs to consume you and control you. So let's close in prayer. Father, I am personally just so grateful for Jesus. I know the capacity of my heart. I know my tendencies. I know that daily I struggle and am tempted towards dumb things. And yet you love me anyways. And God, that is our story for those of us in this room who are in Christ. We are sinners who fall short of the glory of God, but are beloved by you for the sake of your name. And so God, I just simply simply ask a couple things that you would, number one, show us and reveal to us, not just the what, but the why of our core sin. What are we so longing for and seeking for in these ridiculous areas that keep coming up in our lives and tripping us up? God, I pray that you would begin to reveal those and you would heal our hearts. Lord, I know sometimes we lack the discipline or motivation to pursue you daily, regularly. So God, I pray that you would do what we need. We need heart surgery. Would you change our wants Would you give us the energy and the power to discipline ourselves? Would you help us? Because honestly, we're really weak. God, our desire is to grow old in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, there are so many things that stand between us and that day, but God, that's our desire. So would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the context of God's people, for the glory of Jesus Christ, do what we cannot do. And so, Lord, there's no better name to come under and worship than the name of Jesus. And so we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen.